Hi again, folks. Welcome back. I was thinking this morning, what a dreadful thing to do to the the visiting speaker to give them the, the immediately after lunch spot, which everyone says is the hardest bit in the day. Although, I guess on the other hand, maybe that's the, the good place to put you, George. And I just told George that we are expecting him to solve all the problems that we identified before lunch, but just to kind of more formally interview, uh, inter interview, I won't interview you, George, I'll introduce you. I've actually forgotten the name of the organisation you currently work for. Who is it? Which group? Athabasca yeah. University. Athabasca, yes. The uh, very famous online distance university, Athabasca, which is a good place for a guy like George, who you probably know is referred to, amongst other things, as the, the author or father of connectivism. So it's a really great pleasure to have George with us. He's a wonderful, agile thinker who's never in the same spot, intellectually speaking, for very long in my experience of George. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what he's got to say today. George, welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here all. I've got, uh, I don't know, I guess I would say about uh, 40 minutes or so worth of presentation time, but we'll see if we uh, need to use all of that time for presenting or more for Q&A. So very happy to entertain questions as they arise on your end. And some of the thinking here that I'm trying to present, how it might impact the situation that you're involved with. There'll be time for Q&A uh, after the talk, regardless of how much time I take. But I'll start just by trying to address the way in which networks and network structures are impacting existing education sectors. And I think it's fair to say that uh, the 21st century is really quite a difficult time to be a control freak. At virtually, uh, at virtually every level. And it's not just teachers that are grappling with it. So if you find that you're in a place where you're thinking, you know, students are coming in with mobiles, I don't quite know how to manage that experience. We've got, uh, how do we deal with issues of Facebook being used in classrooms or cyberbullying or whatever else you're dealing with, you're certainly not alone. Uh, governments around the world are dealing with this exact same challenge. Leaders are trying to understand how can you manage a population where everybody has access to each other all the time. Situations such as what we see arising in Egypt, Northern Africa, and other parts of the world are only amplified by what we see happening in different systems, such as the 15M movement uh, in response to uh, the global financial crisis of 2008, the Occupy Wall Street movement that I, I suspect most of you are, are at least marginally familiar with, uh, both Canada and Australia sort of escaped the brunt of it, even though certainly there were residual effects that were felt in both regions. But uh, in certain parts of the US, I mean, it was enormously profound to the point where uh, homeless, entire homeless tent communities were being established uh, that in some ways looked a lot like some of the refugee communities that you see coming out of regions of Africa sometimes. Uh, in Quebec, we did have one issue, and this is where uh, certain cultures are very different. In the U.S., it's not unusual, obviously, to have enormous student loans and enormous student debts as a consequence of education. The Quebec government wanted to increase student tuition by $300 a year. Uh, students took to the streets. They had over 500,000 people basically shut down Montreal, and the government that proposed that increase was voted out of office uh, about a month and a half or two months later. So, the, but this, this whole concept is that groups get to decide what's important to them. And when a group of people decides this is important to us, they get to set the stage for how they react to it and the way in which they respond to it. And that's because more and more networks and network structures are starting to 
underpin what happens in social, scientific, and other aspects of our lives. This is just a quick example. It goes back to 1948. An individual sat down and tried to draw out the fields of natural science. And you're not supposed to be able to see what this actually is, but it's this idea that you know we're going to understand how different fields of science, such as medicine and chemistry and mineralogy and uh, engineering, are related to each other. Because understanding, in the eyes of this individual, and I think is very relevant today, is really about how items relate to other items. It's being able to see the connections between concepts and ideas is essentially what understanding and knowledge is. And so this is an attempt by an individual to pull that together and uh, hand-drawn to get a sense of what's the field of science look like. More recently, and again, don't worry about actually seeing what's on the screen here, uh, it's the general idea, not the specifics I'm trying to communicate. This is a map, uh, Public Library of Science, that looks at scientific domains and how they're related. You know, how does something like environmental science relate to tourism, relate to anthropology, relate to biochemistry, relate to chemical engineering? And you just see this sense that these domains are essentially connected structures that in some cases have a few weak links that move across knowledge spaces, but generally they're clustered within that particular knowledge space or that particular knowledge domain. And that metaphor of a network exists not just within scientific communities, but within things like the political blog space out of the US. This is the, I mean, some view that there's a bit of division in US politics. And so this is what you see from 2004, the divided landscape of how bloggers communicate with each other. And you see that there aren't many people who cross those spaces. Most of it is people talking just to themselves and to people who already agree with or already believe what it is that they believe. Similarly, you have the structure of the human brain and the network structure, nodes, networks, connections. I mean, these, these are the basic language or the terminology that we use whether we're talking about political blogs, whether we're talking about the human brain, whether we're talking about file management systems. The model works across multiple spaces. Uh, Alberto Laszlo Barabashi, uh, he wrote the book Linked in, in early 2000. Uh, he made a statement, I think it's quite true, he says networks are everywhere. All you need is an eye for them. To be able to understand that they exist and to be able to recognize just how dramatically they underpin everything that happens in our lives. Here's just another example of, uh, this is the history of philosophy, specifically Western philosophy. This is major thinkers and how thinkers are connected, from, from Kant to Hegel to Marx to Nietzsche, Plato, Aristotle. And if you zoom in on any one of those, you can start to see just who's been influenced by which philosophers, and which philosophers in turn had some of their ideas move on to separate and additional camps. It's just this concept that I'm trying to communicate of this interconnectivity of knowledge structures and history, scientific publications, how ideas get shared, and co-authorship within academic journals. It's all basically the same deal, the same kinds of structures. And it's happening on a level that we in the past haven't encountered before. So historically, we required human beings to connect things because humans were the connectors, so to speak. We recognized in a cause and effect way that perhaps bloodletting doesn't produce the same kind of outcomes as other kinds of science. And I would put it more bluntly and say that all of science is, a is essentially about trying to understand validity of connections between phenomena. You know, if we are exposed to asbestos, does that produce cancer? 
If we smoke, is there a relationship to that with cancer? If I take this drug, does that help reduce cholesterol? Does this help to impact depression, anxiety, all of those factors? So essentially, all of science is a relationship and a connection experience. And now we're doing this with not human agents, but we're starting to do this with technological agents. And so if you look at the concept of linked data, where data sets can communicate with one another, removed from human cognition, so to speak, and you have the development of a potentially exciting and perhaps a little bit of an unnerving future for what we can encounter as machines begin to form and communicate information at a way that humans perhaps have done exclusively in the past. This is relevant or reflective of Google's uh, knowledge graph that they've been working on. You're starting to see it reflected in your search. If you have an Android device, you may have Google Now on your uh, system, which basically tries to, through mainly natural language processing, but tries to extract activities from your email and your calendar to give you a current list of what's going on. So for example, if I open up Google on my Android, I'll see this is the time back home, this is the flight that you have coming up tomorrow morning, these are the details happening here. It's very rudimentary, it's still very much at an early walking stage, it's kind of you know, MS-DOS stage of machines helping us to think, but it's developing quite quickly. One of the things it does produce though, and this is I think significantly challenging for educators and people in the education space is, this is fragmentary. The internet has done one thing extremely well, which is make smaller pieces of previously integrated holes. Right? So what used to be an entire coherent system is now typically broken down into smaller and smaller units. Those smaller units then allow new mo uh, models of connectivity, but they also produce an awful lot of confusion. Because knowledge development then, in this regard, isn't about memorizing facts, but it's understanding how pieces are related. So being able to name certain things is a reasonably low-level knowledge activity. Understanding how these things are connected, that's more complex and more advanced. Through the use of social media and a variety of other activities, we're making a lot of things external. Our thoughts, our intentions, our goals, our aspirations. Eric Schmidt, used to be CEO of Google, he has a statement where he uh, you know, famously said that Google will have done its job when it knows what you're going to search for before you do. And uh, that's not entirely off base because already groups like uh, the Center for Disease Control out of the US, which typically has about a week to 10 day lag time between the outbreak of a flu virus or the, a flu in a region and when they can actually start to intervene in that area because of how long it takes for medical reporting, Google can give them that information typically with, within a day. So about anywhere from six to 10 or nine days earlier before the outbreak happens because the activities that people engage in while they're online searching gives a profile of what's happening. Uh, some of you may have followed the issues uh, that are arising out of NSA, out of the US with their knowledge, or not knowledge tracking, with their use of information through Gmail and Facebook and Twitter as a terrorist weapon to try to intervene and identify terrorist activity early. Because once we've externalized it, it can be analyzed. Somebody can understand or make sense of what happens. And they don't have to do it now. They can do it five years from now. They can do it 10 years from now. There was a case uh, about three years ago where an individual looked at Wikipedia edits. And, he, and this, he looked at Wikipedia edits over a fairly long period of time, you know, as long as Wikipedia has been around. And he looked at political pages and he found that, let's say, in Australia, certain hot topics 
in the government space, some of the prominent edits came from an IP address within the government agency that was apparently being targeted or that was you know, where this, these issues were arising. So you could start to see this propaganda behind the scenes of people trying to edit and influence how people thought about certain topics. Because once that knowledge trace is there, it sits in a database until someone, in this case an individual at MIT, had an idea, what are the relationships between these edits and the locations where those edits are being made and the topic that is the uh, subject of that edit. One of the problems though, and this is something that I'll try and touch on as I go through the, the talk in a few different places, but we, in fragmentary knowledge structures, we have errors because we're not receiving them as an entire whole. So there's space for errors to arise. If someone comes up to us and sits us down to the degree that we can be taught versus learning, and says, this is this topic. Let's say it's physics, an introduction to physics. They might have a textbook, they might be an expert in the field, and they can talk us through the topics and through the ideas. And at the end, we will, at some level, have been able to understand the connections that they understand. We won't have this notion of knowledge transfer, just it doesn't exist, but we like to use it as a term to describe it. But essentially what it means is that we were able to duplicate the knowledge that someone else had because we used a textbook that encapsulated that knowledge space. The problem is online. Students today spend time in our classrooms, then they will go online in forums. They might watch a TED talk. They might not understand a concept and Google it. They might spend some time uh, going through Khan Academy, or they might take a Coursera or an edX MOOC. And at the end of the day, they have these huge fragmentary knowledge structures, but they don't have a coherent or an integrated whole. That's a substantial challenge. In fact, I'd say it's one of the biggest challenges for the education system is to move from a hierarchical knowledge exchange structure where we know what a student needs to know and we tell them what they need to know to a model instead that is network but still achieves intended outcomes. Put another way, the big challenge facing education is how do we achieve set outcomes for student learning through distributed means where we don't control the structure whereby which individuals acquire that knowledge. Not sure how many of you have seen this, but if you ever get a chance to, it's uh, worth doing a quick search on. It's called the private universe. And the private universe tracks a group of individuals at the um, graduation ceremony of Harvard. And it asks them, why do we have seasons? 21 out of 23 students, they're, they're graduating. These aren't you know, incoming students. These are top students at a top university. 21 out of 23 were unable to say why we have seasons. Uh, some would say it was proximity to the sun. That's what produces seasons. Now, in the northern hemisphere, in summer, we are actually further away from the sun than we are in winter. So it's really a tilt of the Earth's axis that's the factor. 23 and a half degrees, that's the key. But these students, so somehow, they managed to make it through one of the top systems of the world and not understand a core or basic thing that I'm assuming most students learn in grade six or grade seven science classes or, or would at least know by that time. So there's this real issue of these systems of education, they test the wrong things or they test things in such a way that students can make it through a system because the tests that they're exposed to don't actually question or force students to make explicit how they see concepts between different uh, types of ideas in a particular class. Does that make sense so far? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, so one of the difficulties in this regard then is this notion of wayfinding. 
you know, how do students find their way through a knowledge landscape that we haven't architected? Because we're taught from a learning design perspective, if you have background in, in instructional theory or learning design, that we try to create the bulk of this experience for the student. We create our instructional events, we use the instructional media or technologies that will be used, and our intent or our goal at least is to introduce students to the key aspects of this domain. We, they encounter it through the core structure that we've designed. We design activities that will help support and deepen those learning activities or those uh, learning needs as well. But increasingly, we need to start seeing this knowledge landscape as one of wayfinding that individuals engage in across many different types of tools, technologies, and knowledge spaces. I suspect most of you, when you don't know something, you probably go to one of two, depending on how active you are on social media. Probably go to Google or a similar search engine, or if you're quite active in social media, you might go to Twitter or Facebook and get information from your network. Wayfinding is a, a concept that actually came out of literature in the 1960s. And it was actually based on how people navigate the US roadways. Right? How do you find your way? How do you set up signs that guide motorists to move in the right direction, to handle the right turnoff, to handle at the right speed? So a variety of those factors. Uh, an individual who was looking at online games and game settings that darken, he looked at wayfinding in virtual games. And a lot of this theory, you'll see if you watch a kid sit down, and, or even you, probably yourself, you sit down and you look at a new technology. I, I primarily use Apple, but periodically when I travel I use Android because it's an open system, so I have an open SIM card for that. And when you move from one system to another, it's really about wayfinding. You know, where is this setting to change the screen color or the, the, the brightness? Where is this setting that allows me to tether to my iPhone or to my laptop? Or these, these are wayfinding experiences. It's a very real type of learning, but it's really where we try to orient ourselves because we can't act meaningfully until we've oriented ourselves to a landscape. If you use a learning management system like Moodle, or if you're using an e-portfolio system, I know that's been mentioned a few times with Mahara and others, your students are very much engaged in this kind of wayfinding activity, where they are trying to get a sense of the landscape so they can take the next step and make the next meaningful activity. What's interesting, though, about this is wayfinding has a lot of attributes to it with what we see in nature in terms of how we forage for information. We, we literally hunt and scavenge, if you will, for important information elements. And there's been some, some solid writings, I think, on information foraging and how it is that people really treat information as a food object that they pursue or trying to make sense of in some meaningful way. And I'll try and tie this together in the next couple slides. So Roy P., in, and this was, uh, it was in the 1980s, emphasizes you know, that the intelligences, how we are smart, is not just a function of the human head. Right? It's distributed across people, symbols, and physical environments. Uh, another word, if you're familiar with Andy Clark, it's this notion of embodied cognition. If you've read some of the work of Olaf Sporns, who's a neuroscientist, he has a similar view where he says the human mind is essentially one node in a broader network that consists of a variety of other objects and other minds. And that's how we're intelligent. So we're not intelligent in isolation or intelligent alone, but we're actually intelligent as part of a broad system. Randy Garris has addressed this as well. You know, this notion of cognition and mind, they're social entities. They are created through social participation. And the language that we use is essentially a social construct as well. 
And the power structures influence the tools we use and we have access to. The biggest difference is that in the past, in our classrooms, we've been able to shape those power structures because we made the spaces. We determined the tools to use. We said you can use this, but you can't use that. We still try that. We still try and tell students, well, uh, you know, you can't use your mobiles in a classroom or you have to put your laptops or turn, close your laptops. We still try to do that to some degree, but it's becoming more and more difficult. It's the same issue that I mentioned that politicians and others face in public sphere where you, you can't shut down a network in many cases. It's very difficult anyways if you do. And that's the problem where we're at where fragmentation of information means that we need to weave them together in some kind of a new model because understanding is one of forming a coherent framework. We don't exist in these fragmentary spaces even though we can encounter information very much in this foraging way where we hit bits and pieces here and there. In order for us to be knowledgeable, we have to see how pieces connect. So it's another thing to know, for example, oh, there's an election coming up in Australia. Uh, it's another thing to know some of the issues that are on the table. It is a more complex or advanced type of knowledge to see how the pieces fit together and to get an emerging pattern of the landscape. What does it mean if, if Rudd is in power or Abbott? Or what if it means if whatever happens? I mean, these are the kinds of things that only an individual who is able to see how pieces and policies connect and relate produce outcomes that we would equate with intelligence. And that's what we do in our classrooms and our spaces. And from the field of artificial intelligence, uh, this is something that uh, David Romelhart wrote in his classic text where he did look at, at connectionism, uh, where he states essentially that all the knowledge is in the connections. How pieces are connected, that's the knowledge. How I connect knowledge or pieces in an information space, that's my knowledge. If all of us sit together, a group of 35 or 40 of us, and we take a text or course, we will all create a slightly different knowledge structure because we're going to connect different pieces and give weight to different pieces. Plus, the biggest factor in learning is what do we already know? I mean, what we know determines what we can learn readily next, which is why it's easier for a psychologist, for example, to learn a new theory of cognitive motivation than it is for a farmer because they have completely different levels of knowledge. And vice versa, a farmer can certainly understand precipitation and fertilization much more rapidly and mechanical attributes of farming much more rapidly than a psychologist would. So here's four key points that I've used this term in the past, uh, the language of, of uh, social network learning or connectivism as a concept to try and describe this. But it, basically it is that knowledge is networked. It's distributed across minds, across people, objects, the experience of learning is one where we form these networks at three particular levels, neural, conceptual, and external, namely our social systems that we're part of. The big aspect is this increasingly occurs in these complex spaces. You know, the world is much more complex than it used to be. Our students, our kids, our friends, family, we encounter a world that has different challenges than it's had in the past. And partly that's just, you connect more, you increase complexity. More and more, this process of sense-making and wayfinding is aided by technology. So the devices that we have access to comprise a greater part of our thinking on a daily basis. Broad argument then, knowledge and learning are the same thing. One's the product, the other's a process. Now what does this look like in a classroom? Uh, I'll, I'll go through a few uh, images fairly quickly, but uh, in a classroom it looks a little bit like this. So historically we've perhaps had a model where it's faculty core content learners. Now I know, I mean, we all know it was never that way, 100%. We knew students talked to each other, we knew students went to the library, we knew, but generally we would see ourselves as either designers or as faculty as the hub of a wheel. You know, we 
directed the activity of the learners, we told them what to read, and that's what they did. Uh, even though there were other spaces where they might interact. But I, I will say, and, and I, I, I'd love to subject this to a study, I haven't done that to date, but I'd love it if somebody else would do it, actually, that would be way more fun. But, so, about five years ago, uh, I noticed a bit of a transition in terms of the nature of interactions in LMS forums. Up until that stage, if I posted readings for the week, or resources or videos, the bulk of the conversation was determined by those readings and those resources. Which meant that at one way or another, the individual students would spend their time talking about what I said was important. Now I don't know what changed, I'm assuming it was some combination of, of students becoming digitally literate or better access to information or the growth of educational resources, whether it was you know, some things Michael talked about, you know, OpenCourseWare at MIT, but all of a sudden students wouldn't just talk about what I posted in the readings, but they would say, oh hey, have you guys read this? Have you guys seen this over here? And it was a big change in the classroom, and I don't know if I could point a particular thing as to why that happened, but to this day, and if you're teaching, just look at what happens in your discussion forums. How much of your online courses, or even your in-classroom discussions, are based on resources that you've provided, and how much of it is on resources that learners bring in? Providing links, using Digo, using Twitter, using whatever else to try and expand resource provision. Again, like I said, I, you know, that's more of an anecdotal assessment. It's not something where I could say, oh yeah, you know, 78% of students now do this. But so what's happened because of this format, it's much easier to connect. So you have faculty core content learners, but you have peripheral learners that they may just connect to uh, on Twitter as one example, but it could be any variety of social spaces or uh, other areas. Core created content or co-created content, I should say. External experts are incredibly easy to bring, in, bring into a classroom now, whether it's through a Skype session or one of the best things I do when I'm developing a new course is I look at the conferences in that field because conferences increasingly publish their keynotes now and you can access them later. So that's a, and typically keynote talks, less, more accessible than articles because quite often they're behind a pass or a, uh, password protected or paywall uh, protected. Whereas a keynote often reflects the current thinking of that researcher whereas a paper might be five, six, seven years old. So those are the kind of things where you can easily, either through Skype or other ways, bring in external experts into your classroom without a whole lot of a problem. One of the things we've done with open courses that, that I've run with Stephen Downs has been an aggregation model of educational content. What we emphasize here, and I'll bring the slide up in just a couple of slides, but that students need to own their own spaces of learning. And this is a problem, this came on the question that, that uh, I know at least one individual was asking Lee earlier about how do you keep this stuff together, how do you keep it in one place. And uh, that's a very good question. It's a very provocative question, but I think there are some guidelines we can use to think about it. So, late 90s, Yahoo, AltaVista, and a few of those were dominant search engines. Yahoo is probably the biggest for quite a while, but Yahoo is based on a curation model of content, which meant that you would go to a Yahoo page, and if you wanted to learn about, if you wanted to buy, um, I don't know, let's say a Honda Civic, you would go to Yahoo and click on the right tab, which would then take you to a folder, which would take you to another folder, and eventually you would get to automobiles, you would get to cars, you would get to makes, you would get to, haunt, eventually you'd have a Civic. So that's how you would get to where you wanted to go. And I'm not sure how many of you remember this, but that was how we searched. That's how we, we used, basically we took the library model of information structure. You know, go to this section and here and here and here and you'll find that book or that resource. 
So that's what we did. And it worked okay because we had a limited amount of information to deal with. There were a lot of websites, but there wasn't the same amount we have now. It's this uh, quote from uh, David Galerter, who's a computer scientist at Yale. Uh, he states, if you have three dogs, give them a name. If you have 10,000 head of cattle, don't bother. Right? So there's this sense that if we have a little bit, we can interact with it one way. If we have a whole lot of something, we need new methods and new techniques to make sense of it. And that's what Google did for us. So there's two ways here. Yahoo provided intelligence at the point of organizing resources. We'll put in a folder, you'll follow our logic to get to that resource. Google came along and said, no, we'll apply intelligence at the point of search. If you're familiar with databases or if you are uh, spend time technically in that space, it's this notion of schema on read, which I think is an important concept educationally, that we don't have to have the structure before we engage in making sense of that topic. Wolfram Alpha would define this more as computational computing, where the pieces are there, but we spin them together into a coherent whole at the point that we need them. Anyways, that's one of the things that we've started to do with our uh, courses. Distributed spaces, we use blogs. We have used, in most courses, an LMS because some people prefer central spaces. Uh, social bookmarking, Twitter, other media. And then we, through Grasshopper, which is software that Stephen developed, uh, we aggregate those various pieces, run a natural language filter against those, and that produces an outcome or a daily email newsletter that summarizes what's gone on in a course. It's very basic. It's, it's a simple idea. Uh, it can become much more advanced technologically, and I suspect will, but this is sort of the general model. Now what this does, I'm not sure how many of you can see this in the back, but I'll just try and talk you through it a little bit. This is sort of the interaction cycle that happens, where you know, you've got your learner and you've got your educator. You have the content that the educator has curated, for lack of a better word. These are course readings and resources uh, and, and artifacts, whatever else has happened. So that's your content that we've put together that said, this is important for you to understand these ideas in this field. But learners mess around with that. So they create things. They create artifacts. I'll give you a few examples. They do this individually, do this collectively, and we then try to aggregate what's happening across multiple spaces. But this is how interaction works, where we start with content, but learners remix, mess it up, share it, improve it, some cases don't. And this is how people come to understand a space. But the problem comes in is, it's a really big question educationally, is you know, can we actually trust learners to account for their own learning? Like, can they learn what we think they need to learn if we are not the central node anymore? If we're still an important node in the network, but not the central, will they get the ideas that we want them to understand? And the reality here is that the internet does reduce these intermediary agents. In many fields it has. Put another way, you can organize without organizations on the internet. You know, you can as simple as if there's a crisis that's going on, somebody sets up a hashtag and people aggregate around that hashtag. That's where the conversation occurs. So, or something is trending in a particular type of social media. It's that hashtag is that schema on read concept where we don't need to know where everything is happening, but this is a place where we can connect to a lot of conversations across different spaces. So learners have at least the potential to be able to manage that information. There have been some illustrations that, of this. So for example, Jim Groom has been involved in this idea of a domain of one's own which is that every student has to have their own space and the aggregation service of the different tools and technologies happens across that particular space. 
But there's a concept and there's some literature around it that supports that, you know what, maybe students can self-organize. Maybe students don't need the organizing hand of, of the learning designer as heavily as we thought. Maybe we can develop a participatory pedagogical model where we give some guidance but we allow students to, uh, students to make their way through it. And this is reflective of something that Erin Brewer looked at where she talked about it doesn't matter where we are, in almost all forms of relationship, whether we're talking food or information, individuals come together, they create and they share. They make resources available, they make sense of those knowledge spaces. And so in online self-organizing social systems, individuals can organize in a decentralized way and can solve complex problems. In fact, can in some cases solve complex problems better than a mandated or a structured system is. And that's where we start to look at curriculum and content. You know, maybe we, you know, maybe curriculum is more of a starting point than the intent of the learning experience. I did a course, it was just an open course, it was 2002, 2003, I believe it was, and I asked a group of educators, okay, here's the course. The basic idea is you'll join me in this course each week on Sunday night, I'll send out a question. Then for the rest of the week, you talk about that question, you share a resource. At the end of the week, I'll write an article based on what you shared and what you said. The idea being that content is a byproduct of the learning process, not necessarily the key requirement for the learning process. And so in some cases, when we have students involved in the activities, open online courses, they are involved in this process where I might start with the content and the resources, but they recenter it with each artifact that they create. They give students and other students an opportunity to think differently and think in new ways about those resources that I've shared with them. And so somebody basically takes a resource and shares it. They create a new wayfinding structure where others find their way and try and make sense of what that means. And that's essentially just a simple example. I mean, this was a course, 2008, and it was a messy, chaotic course. And so one student who didn't like that mess as much as I did decided to pull together, and you don't have to see the details. What I'm trying to say is this is how students give sense to one another. It's a sense-giving activity where they navigate, they share with others, this is how I see the topic. And one of the important aspects here is that when you learn transparently, you become a teacher, right? So if you're learning in open space, as others watch and see what you do, and that's a teaching activity for other people as well. Few quick points then, just to wrap up. So in these kinds of knowledge spaces and where things are chaotic and they're disorganized, we are, and, and I'll, in all fairness, we're not where I could say, oh, we're 100% there, right? We're very much, we're just seeing a glimpse of what learning in a distributed space looks like. The point I've made in, uh, over the last several years is if you really want to understand the future of education, whether you're looking at higher education or, or otherwise, corporate uh, learning, adult education, if you really want to understand that, the biggest thing you have to do is understand the nature of information because the future of education will track to the structure of information. This is historically true. Uh, if you look at back at Library of Alexandria, the amount of information they had, information at that point was capturable, get it in a scroll, post it, share it, curate it. Eventually, information became more socialized through uh, the uh, work of uh, Plato and Aristotle with the Academy and the Lyceum. And so we created physical structures that reflected those social attributes of information. Development of Gutenberg, we created systems for categorization and encyclopedic systems in order to communicate information. So the structures that we've created historically for learning have always mapped to the attributes of information in a particular area. If you want an interesting text on that, it's called Reinventing Knowledge by McNeely and Wolverton. 
So that's what's going to happen. If we want to see what our higher education system is going to look like tomorrow, the first thing you have to do is look at what's the structure of information today. How is it being distributed, shared? There's a lot of points that we don't understand yet. But if you want to try and help systems move in that direction, it's important to start raising the profile of some of the questions around this information. So a few things, assisting your learners. Uh, this notion of Reed's Law, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but Reed's Law is this idea that if you have a large enough network, people can subcluster. That's the point that a lot of people who are critical of MOOCs don't focus on, is it's not that you have 40,000 people in a MOOC talking to each other, is you have 40,000 people who are connecting in groups of 5 and 10 and 20. And that's the key power, that's the whole point of Facebook, that's the point of Google+, that's the point of Twitter. You know, there's 400 million people on Twitter, but they clutter around, or cluster I should say, maybe clutter too, uh, they cluster around hashtags. In other systems, the use of mentors. Uh, one uh, project that George Koros has, uh, has been involved with is he takes principals in the school setting, and he's got several thousand in this course, but he puts, everybody gets a mentor. They get a couple mentors to work with so that uh, they have that connection support. So you're mentoring and potentially being a mentor to someone else. A variety of other things, I don't want to go into great detail here, but the use of multimedia, uh, probably the biggest thing is giving learners permission to explore. A lot of our students are Pavlovian in orientation. That's not just students, we are. I remember when I taught adult education in uh, Red River College, I'd go into a classroom and I'd watch these teachers teaching students. It was a, basically a polytechnic, and they would teach fairly dynamic, active and, you know, instructors in the classroom. I would get them into the classroom and I taught them about adult education theory, and it's like all the passion left. Like they assumed the position of the learner. That's what I mean when I say Pavlovian, right? They, it's almost like they, they, uh, that passion was gone and they, because for 20 years or 12 years plus their graduate program, undergrad, they learned that this is what a learner does. And so when you get students in distributed network spaces, they almost need permission to be able to be open, networked, and collaborative. A few other points, but share as you start to make sense of the content and the format, uh, you know, encourage random connections. I've often said, and I think this is true, but it's frustrating, but if people that you're reading online and following online, if no one irritates you, your network isn't diverse enough, right? Because you, you people should be, because that means you're just agreeing with everything you're hearing. And uh, that's not a good thing necessarily. You should be pulled back sometimes and be forced to rethink a little bit. Um, final point is trust the peer support process. I mean, there really is value in peer structures. Uh, it's something that Coursera is built on, but there's limitations, right? You still need value of curated connections. You need value of somebody who has had experience in the field to be able to comment on, is that a good idea or not? I did find in one of the courses I was teaching that on average, it took less than 20 minutes for students to correct conceptual errors in that course. Now, this was in a, in a threaded discussion forum. So that meant in many cases before I got there to say, oh, wait a second, that you know, literature doesn't quite support that or the research doesn't bear that out, uh, somebody else would have stepped in and corrected it. And the reason for that, it's a simple idea really, is if you put 100 people in a room, all 100 people have different knowledge structures. That means that in a room of 100 people, someone can teach us statistics, someone else can teach us psychology, Someone can teach us pottery. For lack of a better word, we fill one another's knowledge gaps. And that's one of the reasons why, let's say, systems like Wikipedia and others work quite well. So I think that's my 40 minutes. So I think we have time for questions. I'm not sure how much you've allotted, but uh, 10, 15 minutes? Oh, 